Oscar Combs here, and I want to put one rumor to rest, once and for all. The story is that Rafferty's goes all out for sports fans. And let me tell you, it's absolutely true. Confirmed. And fans love Rafferty's right back because the food is so terrific. Serve fresh. Serve fast. Serve friendly. Lunch or dinner. Rafferty's menu is jam-packed with all your favorites. Steaks, prime rib, chicken, ribs, delicious dishes and generous sizes that really satisfy the appetite. So come hang with the sports crowd at Rafferty's. It's the tastiest place in town. Episode 22 of Conversations with Oscar Combs will continue with Oscar's discussion with Ralph Hacker. Ralph Hacker went from being a kid in Madison County to being courtside for some of Kentucky's most memorable basketball games, including three national championships, and as of recently, the newest member of the UK Athletics Hall of Fame. Ralph Hacker led a life that most Kentucky fans would only dream of, and he shares those memories with you and Oscar. There are some fun stories in this episode, and there's a few surprises along the way. Who was responsible and had influence on the Kentucky Kentucky Louisville series? That answer may shock you. This is the story of how a radio DJ from Madison County ended up with one of the most coveted positions in sports broadcasting. I'm Bo Robinson getting you set to go courtside and behind the mic with one of the voices of the Cats, Ralph Hacker. This is Conversations with Oscar Combs. So how does somebody from Madison County wind up becoming the voice of the Kentucky Wildcats? I never thought about doing that. Uh, I've been a lucky person. I've been to the right person at the right time uh and things sometimes fell into fell into my lap uh but when i came over here to lexington to work i was working at wblg as a disc jockey and ralph gabbard who was my lifelong friend was at vlk and it seemed like through our lives we helped one another get a job i helped him get his first job at uh, weky in richmond he was working on the highway uh State Highway Department, or for Allen Construction or whoever it was, building I-75 between Richmond and Clay's Ferry. And he came in one night to see me. And I was doing a disc jockey shift, and I think I was uh, maybe 17. He was 16. And he was as dirty as anybody you've ever seen in your life. And he said, I can't stand this. He said, you got to get me a job in air conditioning. And I knew that they were looking for somebody at, uh, at uh, EKY. So I said, well, come in tomorrow. So he came in, and I'd set it up with... Uh, with Caven uh, Barnett, who was a manager, and John Sullivan, who was the program director, uh, to come in and inter- interview Ralph. So Ralph came came in to visit him and got the job. Then he stayed there for a while, and then he went to uh, Ohio. Uh, he and Jackie, they went up there. They had a little girl, and unfortunately she was very ill. And they were there a couple of years, and then they came back to Lexington, and he found a job at WBLK, and his, his daughter, uh, unfortunately died shortly thereafter. Uh, and he called me one day over at LA or at WBLG and says, you need to come over here. I said, uh, we're looking for some people. So I went over there and interviewed and got the job and, uh, didn't, they turned around one day and Claude Sullivan was doing the ball games and he was doing the Cincinnati Reds as well. And they said, Jim host, I'd taken Jim host place is what I had done. Jim host had gone to work as I recall for Procter and Gamble. And uh, they said, uh, we need somebody to do the high school ball games in the regional colleges. And Claude said, uh, said who are we going to get? And Claude said, what about Ralph? Now, and what year was this? Uh, around 1966. Okay. 
and uh, and they said uh, 67 somewhere in that in that ballpark and uh, they said Ralph Claude said yeah I've been critiquing his tape since he's 15 years old <laughs> so that's how that, that's how that started and it led to finally me retiring in 2002 but let's flip back a little bit your childhood grew up in Madison County eastern end of Madison County I was about uh, two miles from the Estill County line over there down just right where the mountains start, right where the foothills start. I tell everybody we got the Grand Ole Opry late Monday. <laughs> I, so far back far back over there. There was no television at that particular time. Big family? Time. Uh, I had, uh, I had uh, two brothers and a sister. And uh, so we, lived, we lived a long way out there. The, and this is the truth. The, the blacktop ended about two miles before we got to our house. I didn't have any... Telephone, they didn't have. Did you uh, get uh, a political gravel delivered on the Saturday before each November election? Uh, probably. My daddy was pretty active in the Democratic <laughs> Party over there. We probably did, and I didn't know it at the time. The, uh, you, you grew up and went to Eastern. Uh, you're one of their star alumni over there. Well, uh, I went to Eastern, but I didn't graduate uh, simply for the fact that they didn't have broadcasting or telecommunications or stuff like that. I started out as a history major. And then somebody said, well, you, you know, you're going to have to work when you get out, and there's not much of a job for a history major. So I, they convinced me to go into elementary education. So I did that with a speech and drama minor. And at the end of my, sometime in my junior year, late in my junior year, I got a call from Lexington wanting me to come over here and audition, and I did. And they offered me a job. And I didn't know what to do. I was going to go ahead and graduate. And I uh, went to the superintendent whose wife uh, was a wonderful teacher, that I'd had in high school, and went to her first, and she says, well, why don't you go talk to Doug, who was her husband, Doug House. So I made an appointment, I went and talked to him, and I spelled it all out. He sat there and listened, and he said, well, Ralph, uh, you know, if you go ahead and, and graduate, he said, I'll, I'll help you get a teaching job. And uh, if you go ahead and get your master's, he said, I'll do everything I can to get you a principalship of, of, of it. He said, uh, I said, well, that's a Good to know that I'm going to have a job when I get through. And he said, how much are they paying you going to Lexington? And I told him, he says, Ralph, if you want some advice, take the job in Lexington. If you need to graduate, come back over here and get your <laughs> degree later. So, therefore, that, that's what I did. I took the superintendent's, uh, superintendent's advice and, and stayed in Lexington and worked and worked till I retired. In the late 60s, the U.K. broadcast was being carried by a number of stations in Lexington, and – an outfit out of New York had been trying to get the rights to do it all under one umbrella. Uh, when you came here, as you'd said, Claude Sullivan was one of the announcers. What do you recall during that period when you started doing, I think, the freshman games? I was doing the high school and doing the freshman. And uh, we, we broadcast all the freshman football, all the freshman basketball games. We did, did all of that. And uh, in one year I did 125 ball games. That, that's a lot of ball games. Uh, so along that period of time, Charlie Bradshaw and Kay Wood had a fallen out. Uh, Charlie did not like the way that Kay Wood broadcast the Kentucky-Auburn game when I believe the score was 53 to nothing. And, and they were best of friends to that point. They actually, Kay Wood and Dom Fusey lived in one side of uh, – of a duplex, and Charlie and his wife uh, lived in the other side. Uh, and not at that particular point, but had lived together. So they were that close. 
And Charlie just blew up over the way Kay Wood broadcast that ball game. And I'll never forget Kay Wood's response. Charlie, I don't know how to make a 53 to nothing game sound good. And Charlie would never, to my knowledge, never spoke to Kay Wood again. And Charlie said, I'm not doing a pregame show. I'm not doing a postgame show. I'm not doing any of your interviews with Kay Wood. And Kay Wood was in Louisville at the time. And Now, you had more than one broadcast at that time. Uh, no, we'd gone to that. Was, that was a single broadcast at that particular time. Okay, it was a single broadcast. It had already gone. I think it may have been the first year. I, now, you know, things get fuzzy. It's yeah. been so long ago. But uh, so I started doing Charlie's pregame and postgame, and I traveled some, you know, with them, and, and and did that. And I was and Charlie adopted me to do it because I was doing the freshman games. That's that's what right. happened. Charlie Charlie did that. So then, whenever they made the change of the networks. See, at one time, you're, you're talking about you had Kaywood doing them in Louisville. You had either Claude doing them here. You had Bill Sorrell doing them here. You had Earl Boardman, who took over for a while when, uh, when uh, Claude uh, became so ill uh, and, and, and did, the, did the ball games for a while. Uh, and so you had a number of people doing them. Mark Halleck did the games on WBLG. Uh, you, had, you had a number of people doing them. But when, as soon as, as Claude died... Uh, Bernie Shively had been trying to get the single network put together, and he took that opportunity to do it. And the reason they didn't do it earlier, they didn't want to make the decision whether it was Claude or whether it was Kaywood. They wanted Claude because he had the statewide coverage. Standard Oil Network. Standard Oil Network, and, or Ashland Oil when it first began with J.B. Faulkner. Then they wanted Kaywood because when Kaywood came, then they got... The Clear Channel, WHAS. There was no television to amount to anything. So what happened then when Claude passed away, they were able to put it together in a company called G.J. Johnson and a guy named Dick Frick, Richard T. Frick, who I didn't know until later, much, 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 much later, that Dick Frick was from a very, very wealthy family in New York. And they have a museum up there, the Frick Foundation. Now, he wasn't even into the Dick. That was over Moorhead. No, no, I asked him that one time. He <laughs> wasn't. But anyway, Dick Brick was a wonderful guy. So then, in the meantime, Charlie Bradshaw left. I actually got a phone call from Charlie Bradshaw. Somehow I got, I became friends with a lot of coaches over there. I guess they, they trusted me, and I don't think I ever betrayed we'll them. We'll talk about that a little bit yeah. later, too. But Charlie called me and says, Come over here today. So they're going to, I think they're going to fire me. And I'll use the exact words he said. He said, I want to see if the bastards have got the balls to, to come and tell me or they're just chicken shit and they'll end up calling me. <laughs> so I went over and sat with him all afternoon while they had the meeting. They called him. That's what they did. Fired him over the phone. And uh, so then whenever John Ray got here, uh, Kaywood was still working with uh, Jack Cook, who was an accountant at uh, WHAS in Louisville. And had been with him for a long time. And really a great fellow. Great fellow. But John Ray said, I want somebody from Lexington on the broadcast. I want somebody from Lexington who will be here. And will come to practice every day and do all these things. And I said, who do you want? He said, I want Ralph. And that's, that's the way I got on it. So that's how you got on Yeah. L- let's go and, and jump about your career and the coaches and the teams that you covered up until you retired. And, and you talk about... Bradshaw, you talk about John Ray, then, of course, Fran Kirsten. But let's switch over to Adolph Rupp. 
when you when did you first meet him and what was your initial thoughts from Not, that first meeting 1966 I, I first met him uh, I would go to watch the freshman freshman practice and broadcast our freshman games and he would come over and, and speak to me I would I didn't have enough guts to go up and talk to him he'd come over and, and, and talk to me and he would always give me encouragement every time that we would talk he would give me encouragement I have a I don't have a tape but I have a picture is it somebody called I think we were playing Utah and it was in the NIT we weren't playing him they're playing him in the in the UKIT and they didn't send a broadcast crew in, so they called up and asked if there was any station in town that could do the games, and they recommended VOK, and then I went over there and did the games. And I'm sitting here by myself, and Coach Rupp comes along. There's an empty chair next to me, and he says, or Ken's points to it like that, is it empty? And I nodded my head yes, and he sat down. And then during a timeout, he leans over, and he said, anybody working with you, Ralph? And I said, uh, no, sir, just me. He said, well, if you need help, I'll help. And I put a microphone up there. And Coach Rupp was my color man for this game back there. Well, the next day those people called up and they wanted us to do another game. They really did want, They really wanted the color guy. They didn't know who he was, but they wanted the color guy, who they wanted. And so I, I, there was no tape existing of that. But there is a picture that I have of awesome. him doing that. When was your first year working with Kay Wood on the network? Uh, 71 I did uh, 70, 71 or 71, 72? I think it's 71, 72, I think. Adolph's last year? Uh, yes. Okay, that yeah. would have been right. Yeah, yeah. 71. And, uh, and I'd been traveling with him during the freshman, so it was like, you know, like I knew everybody and everybody knew me. And so it was just a, kind of a natural progression to move in there. What was it like first game? Uh, I don't remember the first game. I remember the, I remember the last game in the Coliseum. Uh, the last game in the Coliseum was Mississippi State. Yes, I remember that. They had a big lead with about a minute and a half to go, and right. our friend Joe Dean right. jumped on the mic for the Mississippi State, Jack Criskill. Right, right, right. And said something like, Mom, look what we've just done. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I remember the first year, and I don't remember the game. It's, for some reason, I'm thinking it was, was Dayton, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. uh, they all seem to run together you know, over the, over the course of the years. Unlike you, I don't have that photographic memory of, of past games. Uh, is that there was a... I was sitting to Kaywood's right in the Coliseum, and uh, there was a play on the other end. And he said, oh, my God, I've never seen such a call in my life. That's the worst call I've ever seen. And you know how Kaywood could just go off on the officials. And he turned to me, and he says, what about that, Ralph? I said, to be honest with you, Kaywood, it was too far away for me to see. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> Ralph the Lionhearted. 18 years my junior, and not a bone in his body. <laughs> <laughs> well, since you mentioned that, you, you got to tell me the story the night that uh, y'all were getting back on the air late from a commercial, and they were ready to play, the, put the ball in play, and the ref. Oh, yeah, Earl Burl Crowell. Uh, Burl Crowell was the official. You folks may remember him. He was a bald-headed guy. From Tennessee. He, from Tennessee, from Nashville. He ran a boys' school down in Nashville, and a great fellow, a great fellow, and a good official. And Burl was, had the ball, and we had a new – G.J. Johnston had lost the contract to uh, another company. And uh, so they put in a new format on us, and Kaywood and I weren't real familiar with the format, and we were late uh, substantially getting back, uh, going, to the, going to the break so we could get back for, time for the tip-off. And Kaywood, as you well know, would never ask anybody for a favor. That, that was my job, you know. 
If, if, if it was to get something done that was mean, if it was to get somebody out of your way, if it was to get a favor, I was the guy that was supposed to go do that. So he says to me, see if Burl will hold the game up so we can get back on time. So I stood up and motioned Burl to come over, and he's got the ball in his hand. And I said, Burl, we have messed up. We're late getting back, and we can't make the tip off. Could you hold tip off about 30 seconds until until we uh, uh, get back? And the players are already down in the jump circle. And Burl said, would K. Wood say something good about me? And K. Wood said, throw the damn ball up. And <laughs> and Burl dropped the ball off of his knee, and it rolled all the way to the end zone. He was laughing so hard. <laughs> well, going back to that first year, Adolph's last year, what do you remember most about the mood of the community, the fans, the administration, because, quite frankly, Coach Rupp did not want to go into retirement. He did not want to do it all. See, I'm thinking I was 26 or 27, something like that, uh, from when that age. I was the youngest guy traveling with them. Uh, so I was the guy that all the old guys adopted to drive Coach Rupp. So I was the guy who drove him. Everywhere we went, you know, it, it just we get there, they pitch me the keys and say, you're in charge of coach. So everywhere he wanted to go, I would take him. So I got to hear a lot of his complaints. I got to hear a lot of his uh, reasonings for not wanting to go. I got to hear who he thought was trying to push him out. Uh, I got to hear all these things because he would just sit there and just ramble on. If you just sat there long enough, he would tell you the whole story. And he did not want to go. There was no question on earth he did not want to go. He felt that he had uh, deserved the right to stay. He felt that he had deserved more than the right to stay, that this was his program. He had built it from nothing, and he built it to where it, to it was the premier program in the United States. And he thought he should be able to stay until he, until he wanted to leave. And, uh, and it, was, it was some bitterness, and there was a time, uh, I felt anyway, that you could not be a friend of Coach Rupp and you could not be a friend of of Coach Halls. At the same time. At the same time. And I went to both of them. I said, look, I'm a young guy trying to get started. I think the world of both of you guys, and I need to work with both of you to get, you know, to get, it, to get along. And Joe and I had been friends since he was assistant coach. And, uh, excuse me. And he said, and they both agreed. They both agreed. And, uh, you know, I, I, never said one, I never said to one of them, so and Joe said this, uh, to Coach Rupp, nor did I say to Joe Adolph or Coach Rupp said this. I just I never did that. You know, I didn't go between the two. Uh, I, I did my business between them, and consequently, a lot of the tapes that you hear now of people, or little snippets, uh, are things that Coach Rupp uh, recorded. In fact, when he, one day I said, has anybody ever recorded uh, your memories of the University of Kentucky? And he says, I don't believe they have said, would you like to do it? I said, yes. He said, well, get a recorder. I went out of the car and got a recorder. I sat down. We sat there for an hour or so, and him just telling me stories. Whether they were true or not, I wasn't there. I don't know. It's like Good I asked stories. Happy, Good stories. Oh, yeah, like I asked Happy Chandler once. I said, did you really know and do all the, know those people and do all the things you said? He says, it doesn't make any difference. They're all dead now. <laughs> so <laughs> that's much the way it was with Coach Rupp. Uh, but one of the times in driving him, Oscar, was in 1975 out in uh, San Diego. Uh I had to, the team this is after he's retired. Yeah, the team stayed. Kentucky took him out there with him. Mm -hmm. They put him on the plane. They took him out there with him. But uh, commercial flight that particular time, no charters. Commercial uh, is that 
the team stayed in Fort Kaywood and I stayed over on one part of San Diego. They had the coaches convention at the other, at another hotel on the north side, as I recall, of San Diego, which was a good distance away. And I had to go back and forth nearly every day to take him and where he wanted to go. So I was supposed to pick him up on a Sunday morning. And I go over there uh, to pick him up, and I was on time. I look around, and there's all these coaches, all these coaches that became famous, CM, Digger, Bobby Knight, uh, Valvano, all these guys. Yeah, all these guys were, were, were uh, out there around the pool, and they were all having their, their drinks on Sunday morning and just telling each other how much they knew. So I look around, and here's such two old men. Their sleeves are rolled up on their, on their, on their shirts. Their pants are rolled up, and their socks are rolled pulled down. And I walked over and I touched Coach Rupp on the shoulder. And I said, Coach, are you ready to go? And he looked up like startled and he said, yeah, Ralph, I am. So he got up and he got himself ready. He says, oh, by the way, he said, let me introduce you to my friend Hank Iba. And I, got, I thought right then and I thought ever since then, here are all these guys telling each other how smart they were. All they had to do was walk 20 feet away. They had all the knowledge of the basketball world sitting right there before them. Unique change. Unique, and I, I, because of being with him, I met a lot of people like that. And and in my life, uh, I've been in situations where I've been with people who knew people. Um, God, who ever thought a guy from Barrowwater, Kentucky, going to you know, meet four presidents, or you know, do this sort of thing, or or no U.S. senators, or no governors, and and do all that stuff? I wouldn't have. I was very very fortunate when I moved to Lexington here, and you embraced mm-hmm. me, and Jim hosts some others. 76, early 76, and for the next year and a half, I got to spend a lot of time with Coach Rupp at his home who lived near me. Mm-hmm. And uh, he would tell me stories like you say. I don't know where they were true or not, but I certainly believed them, and they were good stories. But his relationship with Singletary, I'll give you a little story on that, mate. But first, what was your take on the relationship uh, from the time that Singletary got here, which I think was – right around 66 or 67. Otis Singletary was a friend of mine. Great friend of mine. And and friend of many. He was a great fellow. But the fact of the matter is, Otis Singletary wanted Kentucky to be a football school. Uh, Dr. Singletary came from LSU, and he was a Texan, and he wanted football. He wanted to be like everybody else in the South. Uh, He didn't fully understand what basketball meant to the people of Kentucky. Uh, he didn't Because it didn't mean anything to other people in the South. That's right. And uh, he, he wanted it to be that way. So I think that it was not that he had such a dislike for Coach Rupp. It's that he wanted to do something in, to get the football program out front. And the best way for him to do that is to get Coach Rupp out of the way. That's uh, boiling it down into a very small answer. I think that pretty well closes it up. Well, in, in 76, uh, one morning I was over to say, I went and visited him usually Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and I'd go to the post office for him. So this morning, one particular morning we're sitting there, and he's sitting in his easy chair, and he has a little table around him where he does his work. Pretty much sat there most of the time. And he had the radio. Jack Patty was on mm-hmm. Jack Patty show. And uh, we're talking, and he's signing something, and it says, uh, we leave this programming for just a moment. We got breaking news in our newsroom. Uh, we have learned that President Jimmy Carter has just nominated Otis Singletary for Secretary of Education. He pauses me. He says, Esther, 
Come in here and turn this goddamn radio off. Otis is trying to get him another raise. <laughs> and so G came in and turned down. He turned to me and he said, you know, sis, he's just all time trying to get more money. I said, he ain't going anywhere. I said, you wait. It'll be less than a week. They'll announce that they're giving him a new contract and a raise. <laughs> and sure enough, a week later, they did. <laughs> well, you know, for a guy who knew how the game was played, he never, Coach Rupp never played it to get money. For a guy who knew how, how to do it, he never put himself in a position where they would say, well, we're going to, you know, Coach Ruff is going to North Carolina or Coach Ruff is going to back to Kansas. He never played that. No, yeah. he didn't. His, his home was Lexington. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things a lot of people don't know is how the job came open for him was Johnny Meyer had requested from the president a $100 a year raise, and they didn't give it to him, so they went and hired this Young coach from up in, I think, Freeport, Illinois. Mm-hmm. Take a job by the name of Adolph Rupp, and the rest was history. What What do you recall about Coach Rupp leading up from that point to his passing? And I think we were all on a road trip to Kansas the night that he passed away. In we were. Uh, I just, I remember him fondly. I remember being when I first started covering Kentucky, not uh, about a year older than the senior players, and that's the way he treated me. You know, I mean, he never, you know, shouted at me or things like that. He would do for a player. But, I mean, he treated me much like, you know, uh, the young boy I was uh, uh, on doing it. Uh, I never will forget one night where Baton Rouge, Louisiana, we'd gotten, uh, we'd gotten bogged in. We couldn't get out. His reasoning was if we can't get out, Tennessee can't get in. Let's find out where they're. And Tennessee and us in Kentucky traveled on the same rotation. So we found out where they were staying. And it was called the Prince Marriott. Until the day he died, he thought it was the Queen of Sheba. (laughs) So uh, we were, and I was doing the freshman games. So we, Kay Wood and some other people and I went out to eat. We had great food in Louisiana. So we come back, and I hear these people talking. And as I'm walking by the door, I hear this voice say, Ralph, come in. Well, Kay Wood jumped beyond the door. He was smarter and more seasoned than I. So we'd go in, and he looked up at me, and he had uh, Dutch Casey, and he had uh, Steve Rarden, and he had Bob Wiggins, Manuel Thornton, Harry Lancaster was in there, and a couple of other people. His room was jam-packed with people, players' dads and, and his friends. And he said, uh, have a drink. And I said, no, sir, I don't drink, thank you. And he said, well, fix me one. So he hands me a glass and says, the bourbon's over there. So I'll have a bourbon and water. So I go over, and, and that may have been scotch, but I just remember he poured something in water. So I go over, and I pour just like what I thought was about an ounce. And it just measures for me to go on up. Now, we're talking about an eight-ounce water glass. And he, I pour a little more. He goes, like that, takes his hand going up. I get right to the brim. And he goes, whoa, are you going to put any water in there? So I picked up the water glass that was sitting there next to it. I just tilted it. I never, not a drop came out. And he said, whoa, that's enough. <laughs> so that was my introduction to Coach Rupp for traveling with him. I, I got to ask you this about the group that started out with Rupp, continued many years while you and I are there. His little entourage of Steve Rarden and, and some of those. Manuel Thornton and Bob Manuel Wiggins. Manuel Thornton, Bob Wiggins. Uh, uh, there was one other one. Uh, the, uh, George Stamatis. Uh, Stamatis and uh, uh Eula May and uh, her husband, they own the motel out on Winchester Road. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, they, they traveled. 
nearly everywhere, nearly everywhere we went, it was it was like uh, groupies, I guess, or a posse as they would call it day, or whatever they whatever the proper word is now. Is they went everywhere Kentucky went. And wasn't there a lady that always made them brownies or cakes that was, in Georgia? That was, yeah, Elamay. Okay. Yeah. I think it was Elamay. You mentioned about Coach Rook dying and being there. That was in Kansas. Doc Jackson, V.A. Jackson, was a team physician for many years. We came back from the game, went in there, went to this hotel there in Lawrence, Kansas, and 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 it was it was customary that they would all get together and have a post-game drink if we were staying over. And we were staying over that night for some reason. It was cold. I remember that, and the wind was blowing. And Doc Jackson comes out with tears in his eyes, and he said, uh, Boys, Coach Rupp just died. He said, The last thing he heard, Kay Wood, was you say that Kentucky had beaten Kansas. He <laughs> closed his eyes. And that's, he said, He just talked to Herky. Let's go back to one particular season. You were here, but you weren't doing the broadcast at the time. What do you remember most about? And this was probably Rupp's late, last great, great team, the 70 team with Esso and Pratt, and I think lost to Jacksonville up in Columbus. Mm-hmm. What do you remember most about that? Um, I remember that uh, when – And <laughs> that was the Pete Maravich era, too. Pete Maravich era. I remember, you know, Dan Esso was such a fabulous basketball player, and Pratt was a good ball player. And, and, and uh, a lot of good ball players on the team. <clears throat> but uh, I re- the funniest thing I remember, and I didn't make this trip, I was watching this one for very few games on TV, remember, but the game was on TV, and we played, I believe, in Columbus, Ohio, played Jacksonville. Artis Gilmore was playing. And Issel fouled out. On a, on a, a controversial call, I think. And Issel goes by the official and says something, and the official just starts laughing. And what Issel says, I can't repeat. But I asked him when he got back, I said, what did you say to the official? And he told me, and I still think it's one of the funniest lines I've ever heard. It's about, like, you are a smart ass. You know, something like that, and the official just broke up because it wasn't like Issel to say that. Yeah. Uh, but, that, you know, it's uh, I just remember that. If it had not been for Gilmore, they'd have won the game. But if it hadn't been, if we hadn't had Issel, we probably wouldn't have been there to start with. So when you arrive, there's a new era here. New era. A guy is replacing a legend. Right. And how do you remember those first two or three years and going through the Joe B. Hart era? Well, Joe had his own posse. That was that was one thing. Joe had his own people. I remember and know the people well, uh, both are now deceased, who went to St. Louis and drove Joe B. Hall back when he went to St. Louis to take the game. Uh, I knew when they left town to go. I was I was that close to these guys who went out there and got them. Uh, and and Joe, I, I think, started this, started his career with a chip on his shoulder uh, with it. And, uh, and maybe rightfully so. I don't say that it was not supposed to be there. And Joe did a whale of a ball game. I did a whale of a job coaching while he was here. Uh, and... They almost won the championship. If it not have been, I still think that Johnny Wooden should have been thrown out of the game at uh, in San Diego. I think he 75. should have been ejected out there. And that was Joe's first year. Oh, final Final um, Four. That was his first year, wasn't it? No, it's seventy five. It's okay. third year. So so anyway, that that would have been Joe's that would have been Joe's uh, uh, first first national championship. And I think that he the officials messed over Joe by not throwing Johnny Wooden out of the ball game. He had a Great run going there. His first year, he won the SEC on the right, last right. day of beating Tennessee. One of the times that fans actually rushed the floor at the Coliseum. Yeah. Then the next year, his second year, is when he had the 13-13 year. The heat was building up. 
Mm-hmm. And then the third year they went to five. Right, four. right. Like I say, I told you yeah. before, my memory yeah. gets fuzzy. Uh, you, you, you go in, but after the 75 team that went to San Diego, the next year you struggle. You're 10 and 10 at one point. Roby breaks a limb, but yet they come and run and win the final six games of the year and get in the NIT when it meant something. I mean, they were like four ranked teams in NIT because you were taking something like 32 teams in NCAA. New York City. Uh, you and I got to spend time together for the first time up there. I, rem- I was still in Hazard. Yeah. I remember it well. Uh, I remember that when he was 10 and 10, people wanted to lynch him. Yes. And then he caught fire and gets the NIT. They still wanted to lynch him. Didn't make the NCAA. Roby took off, went to Florida for spring break. I remember that. Yes. They go to uh, they go to New York. Now, now the, the tale on that is I think that was 76th. That they had to win that last game of the regular season, and that was that famous Mississippi State game yep. that they came back. Yeah, yeah. And then when they get to they get to New York, they weren't expected to win. Kaywood and I literally took enough clothes to stay <laughs> one night. That's what we took. Well, I they, remember that because the first day we were there, we were staying in the uh, in the hotel that was named at the time Statler Hill. Statler Hill across the street, and it's changed several times. It's still yeah. there. I stayed in a couple of years. Yeah. And I was down early in the morning, you were sitting down there, and you said, will not you go over and have a cup of coffee with me and Kaywood? And we went over and sent them, but Kaywood hadn't joined us yet. And you got there, and you opened up the menu, and you looked at it, and Kaywood come down, and Kaywood said, I'll take a cup of coffee. And you said, Kaywood, might want to look at the menu first. He said, I just want a cup of coffee. Kaywood looked at the menu. He looked at it, and it was $7.50 for coffee, and he closed it and said, we'll go down the street. That's right. I'd already found the place around the corner, as I recall. Yeah. Uh, Where you got a full breakfast for like four ninety nine. Yeah. You know, food's food. <laughs> yeah. But went to New York, and Coach Rupp was invited to go as his guest. It's the first time he'd, Kentucky had been to the NIT since the scandal. And uh, uh, so – we run into Coach Rupp at breakfast or something there in a Statler Hilton and ran into him someplace. And he says, now, there's a fellow from the New York Times has called me, and he wants to come and do an interview. And I don't want to be there alone. I'd like to have you come up there and sit with me, meaning Kaywood and me. So looked at Kaywood, nodded her head, and came the appointed hour to go up there, and I go up. Kaywood won't go. So I go up there to the room. As I'm going there, uh, I walk in at about the same time the reporter does, and Coach Hall is leaving. And he's trying to get out the door before the reporter gets there. (laughs) So he gets by him. As we close the door, the reporter says, wasn't that Coach Hall? And Coach Rupp says, yes. And and Coach had said to him, I was in the room when he said, he says, don't tell anybody I talked to you. Don't tell anybody I gave you any advice. And Joe says, yes, sir, Coach. Yes, sir, Coach. So he gets out the door and goes around. And he says, the reporter says, uh, wasn't that Coach Hall? And he said, yes, it was. He says, well, did you give him any advice? He says, I told him. (laughs) 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 But we were broadcasting up there in the Madison Square Garden, and we were so far away, I called Marilyn, and she overnighted me binoculars (laughs) for the game and clothes. We end up staying. Louisville gets beaten, right? And the Kentucky would have played Louisville in the second game if Louisville had won. Right. Louisville was beaten. Max Ryan, who started the the Derby Classic basketball game down in Louisville, he was there. He was a friend of Denny Crumbs. And I'd met Denny but didn't know him well. Well, after they lost, we all go out and have dinner and things after the after 
Louisville's loss, Kentucky's win, we'll go have dinner. Well, we got the start of a friendship that's been all these years, since 1976, with Denny Crump. Uh, right there. And Dana Kirk was with us. And every night after Kentucky's ball game or when they didn't play, we would it'd be Max, uh, Denny, Dana, myself, and Marilyn's nephew, or Marilyn's first cousin. We'd all go out someplace and have dinner and, and run around there. And Denny decided he'd rather own the shock-absorbing uh, – concession for New York City cabs <laughs> then he had to be a coach and he looked at us one night and he said that'd be a stupid move they don't use shocks on their cars up here. <laughs> but that was that started a friendship with Denny Crum and, uh, and to me and I which was last to this day so so they end up winning the NIT that year right. Rager Ward Warford was a hero right in in the game and that sets them up for a big two-year run 77 they lose to North Carolina and of all places, College Park, Maryland, on the same floor they lost in, in 66, in the Elite Eight, uh, in uh, 77. What do you remember most about that game? The, the four corners, North Carolina? I learned to hate slow-down basketball. That's what I remember about that ball game. Uh, we saw it again, as I recall, very little. But the last time we saw it was the University of Cincinnati. Uh, but... I, I just remember North Carolina coming out and just passed the ball around. So we, you know, just kept it away, play keep away, is what it amounted to. Uh, at that, got late in the game. John Kuster, there was a foul uh, at midcourt, a blocked charge with Larry Johnson, and uh, there was a hard, uh, another hard foul, and Dean Smith come out on the floor, and supposedly he made some remarks to Rick Roby. Were you close enough courtside to hear that or, no. or know that? No. No, I heard about it, but I, yeah. you know, I, that was all. We, you, a, we, a we, lot could, of, we could see their mouths moving. <laughs> a lot of people thought that that would have been a championship if they had won that game because then they would have been pacing most likely Marquette. You know, coaching wins or loses more ball games than people think. Uh, a thing that a coach will do, Coach Wooden doing what he did, Coach Smith doing what he did, uh, they probably won the ball games there. There've been other other things like that. Kentucky had the situation where they would, you know, always thought Rick Pitino was was amazing the way that he could, you know, get a technical foul and change the entire ball game around. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe B was good at that. Mm-hmm. You know, Joe B was was good at. Getting it it a seemed like that was an era where yeah. there it seemed to be much more widespread than it is today. Although some does it today, but they the official don't seem to give the coaches the leeway that they did in that era. Officials weren't big stars then. You didn't have television. Well, first of all, too, through most of that one, I don't know about the tournament itself, but I know during the regular season, you had two black balls. You could black ball two officials at the beginning of the season. Yeah. And you can't do that today. No. It's, 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 it's a different situation now. You know, it's like the world has, has evolved. If you, I don't know whether it's good or bad, but it's evolved. It's, it's no longer like that. Let's go through the 78 season. Uh, the, some one that some people ate the season without joy. and and But the, uh, the all the players, and you know all of them even today, uh, I guess they look at it much differently than they did during the time. Well, I don't know who first wrote the fact that there was no joy in Mudville uh, about Kentucky's team. Uh, but it was written, and it like so many things that are written, it's picked up and it's copied and pasted and goes on and on and on. Uh, I think the players always had the attitude 
that they could win the national championship. And, but they had to keep their eye on the ball. And they dedicated themselves without a lot of publicity of saying, we're going to do this. And not like it is today, we're, you know, rah, rah, uh, we'll do this, we'll do that. They did it very quietly. And they just maintained their focus on what they had to do, and they went out and did it. You had three seniors on that team that were that helped. so well-seasoned and, and focused. And you had a sophomore who was probably was as focused as the seniors were. Well, there's no question. Jack Givens, you know, was laser-focused. Uh, and he had been that way all of his athletic life. Uh, I would say Jack's that way now about what he does. Uh, but you're right. You, you, you had senior leadership, which is terribly important. Uh, I don't. You can do the one and dones until hell freezes over. But you're not. You had Roby and Phillips there yeah. with Jack. Yeah. yeah, but you're not going to win many championships with one and dones. Right. You've got to have somebody going to be there as a junior or senior to to get you through. Uh, but you had. You're right. You had all of those people. Even James Lee. Yes. I mean, James Lee was stayed focused during that particular time. You had. Uh, you know. You had. Uh, you know. Just so dead, but Jay uh, was on that team and. and and just there's just so many so many kids that you could f- interchange, but there was only one on that particular night. There was the championship night. There was only one goose. That's right. There was only one goose. I remember most about that season, uh, the trip, the two game road trip. There were Saturday Monday road trips back then. We were in Baton Rouge on Saturday night, and then we were in Oxford, Ole Miss on Monday night. And in Baton Rouge, Kentucky lost in overtime. Uh, all five starters for LSU had fouled out before overtime. You remember Dale Brown after that and, and his press conference, and he, he made the statement that, you know, they have the All-Americans, but we had five guys that didn't have any notoriety, but we won. And then we flew up to Memphis on Sunday morning and drove down to Oxford. And that was the day that uh, Dwayne Casey and Freddie Cowan was like, 15 seconds late for the bus to go to practice, and Joe pulled off and left them. And then the next night, they had all those substitutions. I think there were 33 substitutions in the first tie. What do you remember about that trip mostly? I, Not a lot. Not a lot? Not a lot uh, at all. And, of course, that was their last loss of the season. They'd lost to Alabama earlier mm-hmm. in the year. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the tournament, and there's that, what could have been a very fateful game against Florida State. Where we changed four fifths of the lineup. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody thought Joe had lost his mind. Yes, at, uh, at halftime. At the halftime, uh, yeah, I, I remember that well. You know, I remember, I remember that, and uh, and, and people, I remember when they came out. It was Kaywood and I were sitting there checking off the, the people who were on the floor, uh, start the second half, and we looked at one another and. Would look down at our cards again, you know, <laughs> and said, "Whoa, something's wrong here." And talked. And then we started talking about what a gutsy move Joe had made, you know. After that game, at what point during that run did you feel confident that this team wasn't going to lose the title? I don't know, Oscar. I don't think I ever felt like at any particular point that 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 they weren't that it was given that they were going to win. I don't think it was a, a given. I just felt like that they were the best team if they came out that night and played the way they're supposed to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they would that they would win, uh, and that's that's what they that's what they ended up doing. Uh, but I think that 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 jerked a knot in their tail that Florida State ball game. Uh, 
I asked Hugh Durham about that one time years later when he was up here in Lexington playing golf, and he said, I thought he was crazy. You know? <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, I, I just never I never really went into any, any ball game thinking, well, you know, Kentucky will win this thing, uh, you know, by 20 points or by 10 points or by two points. I thought it was always going to be a battle. One of my favorite players, and I got a ton of them that I've been around here for the last 40, 50 years, I think probably one of your favorites too, Sam Bowie. Who work we? What do you What do you remember most about the trials and tribulations he had with that injury and missing two full seasons, and actually deciding to come back that last year when he didn't have to? What I remember is, is a side story to his athletic ability. Is we're at the University of uh, over at Auburn, and Joe said uh, I was jogging, and Joe said, "Take Sam with you." Sam needs to stay in shape. Take Sam to run with you. So we go out and we start to run, and uh, Sonny Smith stops us and says, now, isn't this something? I had a University of Kentucky football shirt on, and he said, now, isn't this something? He said, that's ridiculous, running with the University of Kentucky football shirt on. Well, Bowie had the basketball shirt. We went around the gym one time up there in the Coliseum. Sam says, I'll be sitting here when you get through. <laughs> That's what I remember about that. Then we get through and go down, and Sonny gives us two University of our Auburn University basketball shirts. I said, now you talk about a dichotomy. Right here, you know, an oxymoron <laughs> right here, Sonny. Yeah. So, but I remember that, that Sam wanted to play so badly, but he, he hurt. And I didn't really realize what hurting he was going through until I later in life uh, had something very similar happen to my legs. And – and when you put your foot down and, and, and it just, the pain shoots through you, you know, like you feel like your, you know, your ankle bone is going to go through your knee bone, you know, things like that. That, uh, I didn't know what Sam was going through. And he, Sam gave an awful lot. And to go through the pain and to go through everything that he went through and to participate at all, and then to go into the pros, and even though he never was the superstar that he was projected and drafted to be, it was all because of illness, all because of injury and in Sam's part. And but was, they respected him enough for what he had done and what they thought he could do. He was actually even picked ahead of Michael Jordan. No question. And and, and what a great young man he is. Uh, even to today, he was not a young man, he was a middle-aged man. But Sam Bowie is a, is a, is a great citizen. He's a great citizen, uh, loves his kids. You know, Spent some time on the radio broadcast with the network. I loved him. You know, he was... Uh, he always loved you. He said you always picked up the check. Yeah, <laughs> I knew he wouldn't. Uh, is it? But we we spent many hours together. Actually, lived two houses apart uh, here in Lexington, and I just uh, there's nobody today I think any more of than I do Sam Bowie. Uh, he's just he's been through a lot. He's answered a lot. He's taken care of people that he didn't have to take care of. He's taken care of his family, and I respect that. Last three years of the Joe B. Hall era, eighty three. The Louisville game in Knoxville, Tennessee. The dream game, they said. The right? dream game, yes. The dream game. Uh, I got to be honest. I, I've I've never been a fan, and I'll explain to you why, of Kentucky playing Louisville. I just uh, I, somewhere in the back of me there was a politician, and I kept looking at what it would mean. The University of Kentucky was getting most of the dollars out of this legislature for education the university and for all the time community colleges. I always said, and then the majority of the legislators who were there were University of Kentucky graduates, 
law school, undergraduate, whatever it happened to be. I'm talking about those that had law degrees and things of that nature. I said, as sure as Kentucky starts playing Louisville, it puts Louisville on an equal stance with the University of Kentucky. It changes everything in Frankfurt. It changes it all. Now, having said that, back in the 60s and the 70s and early 80s, look and see what's happened. Look and see what's happened. Uh, you know, I'm not right about a lot of things, <laughs> but I was right about that. Well, and it actually started in the late 60s when University of Louisville was a city university and almost ready to have to close its doors, and the state accepted them as part of the state college system. A side story of that is, and I was told this by Dr. Singletary, Governor Ford offered Dr. Singletary the University of Louisville as one of its campuses. And Dr. Singletary turned it down. He said, it's one of the worst mistakes I've ever made in education. It's not accepting the University of Louisville into our system. Uh, again, they were back to the happy Chandler line. Can I prove it? They're both dead. But that's what he said. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Uh, but back to that particular game, the lead up to it. Of course, everybody said that a lot of people have been saying Kentucky had been ducking them. But as you had said, in 76, they're – there was the opportunity there. I think 80 or uh, 81 or 82, Kentucky would have played Louisville if they had beaten, was it Middle Tennessee? That sounds right, yes. I think Middle Tennessee and Kentucky got lost that game, but yeah. now they finally meet. Mm-hmm. And of all places, Knoxville, Tennessee. <laughs> right, of all places. <laughs> of all places. I just, I don't know. I've always been torn about, about that. I've always been torn about that. Uh, it was a great game. You know, this sort of thing. And I think the game was probably better than anybody ever thought it would be. Oh, absolutely, because, I mean, you know, you can make an argument if there's one decision made at the end of regulation, Kentucky wins the game. That's right. And it was Kentucky's problem, not obviously yeah. Louisville. Yeah. Uh, but that did lead into the series as far as that started the next fall. I remember, and, and th- you ask about what I remember about that. The thing I remember is uh, it's much like people who write about the president – whether it makes a difference who's in, who's in power, who's of the presence. If one group wants something done, you get one guy who gets something started and just keeps on going, they will cut and paste. I think Billy Reed had as much to do. I don't think there's any question. As much, much to do with that game happening as anybody because Billy was relentless in his reporting of that uh, and, and how he, you know, his opinion of whether they should be playing or not. And I think uh, Brent Musburger maybe had a little bit to do with, with his preseason interview with Joe where they cut the, the tape, but they showed him saying no, no, and then they turned around and played it again before the 83 game. And it first appeared in November of the of that preseason, and then that too. Possibly, but I still – Billy Reed would have more oh, freedoms in my mind and yeah. with the people of Kentucky yeah. than, Br- than Brent Musburger yeah. did. Uh, Brent Musburger – But have the had, national media picked up on it after that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they did. But Billy's the one who started it all. So we you go into you go into eighty three. It's the opening. There the debate then is when are you going to play? You going to play it early? You going to play it late? The general consensus is Crumb always started slow, so they wanted to play it late December. Joe was always ready to play in November because they had all that tough no, uh, November December schedule. And I think the opening maybe maybe even Thanksgiving weekend. If you remember the time, Louisville didn't play 
home games in December because they had the Freedom Hall booked up. Yes. For other things. Yes. Uh, Denny never had his team ready up to that point, and that was his point. Mm-hmm. You know, let's play. Let's play later on when we've got a chance to mm-hmm. to get some games under our belt. You know, we can't play you now. You know, and he, you remember, I don't think he, he ever came out public with that. But I'm just telling you that's that's that was what he was. Do you say. remember who televised that first game in November? WTBS, the Superstation. They bought the rights to it. Yeah. And I was looking the other day because you're saying they came to Rupp Arena, and in the lobby next to the high, uh-huh. they had a one-hour pregame show. And guess who hosted that pregame show? Craig Sager, a young young Craig Sager. And I'm trying to remember. Uh, who did the play-by-play? Hey, it's Bob Neal. Bob Neal. That's exactly right. Yes, exactly right. So you 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 go you go into that season, uh, you leave that. You go into the '84 season where Bowie is finally back. Take it from there. Well, I think you know the kind of do we get to Seattle? Yes. <laughs> Let's just go straight to Seattle. Yeah. You know we had a great year. We had after a great year. You had, you had Melvin. You had uh, you had. Uh, uh, had Sam and the Big Dipper. And so we get there, and I thought, and that's, if you asked me earlier if I thought we'd win the national championship in 78, I really thought we'd win it in 84. That's when I thought we'd win the championship. If I ever, and I think the only time I ever thought we'd win it, you know, for sure, and then we lose it, is we go out there and I think uh, Kentucky had already beaten uh, Houston at home on Super Bowl Sunday that year. That seems familiar, you know. But I think we we go out there. There there was great years, remember, for big men. Yes. That that great year, a couple, three years in there. Uh, But we go out there, and we were were leading, what, 12 or 15 points at halftime? Yeah, I think we were up Uh 15, and at the half, we were actually leading by 11. Yeah. And I've I've always asked the players and asked Joe, I said, what did you say at halftime? And he says, nothing different than I have said at any other halftime. I did a podcast with Kenny Walker, and he said there was nothing out of the ordinary. Yeah, just uh, get, get you some water, you know, get get rest up a bit, and then stay loose, and then go out and do the same thing in the second half you did in the first half. I think that's basically what they've told me over the years. Yeah. And they came out looking like me and you out there playing. I think we look better. I don't know. I I don't know about that. I mean, what was it, three for 33 or something like that? that. It was just absolutely awful. And I remember just being stunned that we that we just lost it so so badly. It uh, seemed to me like there were like nine or ten minutes to go in the game, maybe 11 minutes, and they were one for something at that point. Yeah. And could. Blackman stole the ball at midcourt, and he was all alone for a layup. And he laid that sucker right over top of the goal. Yeah. And at that point in time, you're like, boy, something. Wrong. I mean, it just—it just—it's almost like a nightmare, in to me, in the history of University of Kentucky basketball. Uh, like I said, there are a lot of things I forget, and forget it conveniently, <laughs> and and the details of that game after us leading at halftime is one of them. You, uh, you come back from that year, and Joe has said a number of times that's been a long time ago. Said a number of times that he had intended to re- resign, retire after that game. Until it happened. And then when it happened, he just didn't want to go out and leave nobody there. So he came back in 85, and which probably was one of his better coaching jobs in 85 because, you know, they weren't expected to go anywhere. They lost early in the SEC tournament. Uh, a lot of people were really upset at other schools because they felt like Kentucky didn't deserve 
NCAA tournament bid that year, but they went to Salt Lake City and had a couple upsets. They did. Uh, they went out there, and when they got to the NCAA, I thought this team may this team may go on. You know, this team may go on because if we can get back to Lexington, we got a chance of winning it. That's right. Right. We get back to Lexington, and uh, but that was not to be. Yeah. And the rumor all around out there was Joby's going to going to retire. Joby's going to call it quits, if you recall. Okay. Uh, now they, they beat they beat I think uh, Washington and UNLV at Salt Lake. Mm-hmm. We come back, then we go to Denver. And they're going to play St. John's. At what point of those two weeks did you start hearing that chatter? On the way to on the way out to uh, uh, to uh, Denver, second round to Denver, we started started hearing it there, and uh, maybe even until we got there, we're staying at the Brown Hotel. Maybe not even until we got there to the Brown Hotel, we started hearing it. And and I remember uh, one of the things things that I. Uh, can't say control, but I say I produced was the was the pregame and postgame radio show, mm-hmm. and Kay would of course do the interviews. So we we did that, and it, it came. Somebody came to me and says, uh, uh, Joe may have a special announcement after the ball game. He wants to do it with Kay Wood, and we I kind of looked up, and I remember uh, you know Joe B then saying I said to Kay Wood, you know what Joe B is going to going to do? He said ah, not sure. You know, something like that. Mm-hmm. So it kind of led me to believe that, that something was up. And then when we come back from practice that afternoon, I sat on the bus with Jim Hatfield, I think Dickie Parsons, and who was the other coach at that particular time? Uh, uh, Jim Hatfield, Dickie, and uh, who was it? And the three of us sat on the uh, sat on the bus. Three of well, them. Well, Dickie wasn't there then. No, it wasn't Dickie. Whoever it was, yeah. they were, whoever it was, the coaches were sitting there, and they said. Tell us if you know where Joe B is going to retire. Lake Kelly. Yeah, going to retire. That's right, Lake. I said, I don't know. I don't know. I said, I just know that they want to make sure that he can make it. We're having the post game. I said, well, we always have the post game. And they said, we think he's going to quit. He hadn't told them, to my knowledge, that he was going to quit. Well, that Kenny Walker quit. says that he didn't tell them until after he had announced it on radio and got on the team bus to go to the airport. I think that, that gets probably true. Probably Probably true. Now, again, I don't know whether it was that night. I'm thinking we didn't leave out till the next day. Oh, you're right. It, we're going back to the hotel. Right. Because uh, uh, two things make me remember oh, that. They could, if they'd won, they'd been playing another day. I know that Kaywood and I went down. We got in, put our, our stuff in, went down to the bar, and Tom Hammond was with us. Yes. And here comes Ray Hornbeck down. And Ray Hornbeck says, uh, we uh, – Dr. Singletary would like to have you all come up to his room. We said, wants us to come to his room? He said, yeah. So he said, uh, you come too, Tom. So we had Tom, Kaywood, and me, and we go up to Dr. Singletary's suite. If I'm not mistaken, Bob McCowan of Ashland Oil came in. And Dr. Singletary offered everybody a drink that one of one. And he says, boys, we need to find a basketball coach. Says, Joe quit tonight, as you all know. I was up there on that floor with you. All right. You remember this? I remember exactly somebody tossing out. He said, Eddie Sutton. That was Tom Hammond. And Cliff Higgins had yeah. come into the room. And Singletree said, under no circumstances. Right, right. And uh, so so Cliff had come in for that particular time. And Tom Hammond was the guy who put forth the name of Eddie Sutton. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that. And so that's the way it went, you know, at that particular point. 
And there were some other side things that went on after that particular point uh, that, that I will never discuss with anybody, but uh, uh, that I had with Dr. Singletary and some some other coaches. But uh, that was under the privacy of, of business that did that. But that was I remember that and how shocked everybody was really in the administration that Joe quit. At that, at that point, they did not expect Joe B to quit. And I got to tell you something. I was shocked. And I remain shocked to this day. And I, even when we went to the painting well, of the Joe B wall over in Cynthiana, I kept thinking to myself, Joe, why did you quit? Why didn't you go another 10 well, years? Well, the, the, thing, the thing that surprised me that night, and not at the moment that he said it, but later on, is he kept emphasizing that he was not retiring, he was resigning. Yeah. And that doesn't sound like a guy that just is going to retire. I mean, so why did you quit? Yeah. That, that's, that's, that's just a, yeah. an obvious I, question to have in your mind. Sure. And I just, uh, you know, I loved him. I thought, and I always said that Joe would be a better coach 10 years after he quit coaching than he was while he was coaching. All you have to do is watch him go out and do the <laughs> white Rupp Arena today. Yeah. And he, what a great fellow. And he, I thought he did an excellent job under extreme circumstances. Yeah. Uh, I thought Joe just did it, and he was a magnificent recruiter, and the players that he got in here, and the way he coached them when he got them in here. Uh, I I thought Joe was super. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Episode 22 of Conversations with Oscar Combs. We have more from Ralph Hacker in the future, but if you would like Ralph's thoughts on Kentucky football, Episode 21 of Conversations is what you're looking for. And if you're looking for more of Oscar's conversations with former players, Coach Joe B. Hall, and personalities that have surrounded UK for many years, then OscarCombs.com is your source. To subscribe to Conversations with Oscar Combs, go to the iTunes Store or the Google Play Store and search for at Wildcat News and subscribe for free. That way you're guaranteed to receive exclusive content from Oscar that you're not going to find anywhere else. Once you subscribe, all new podcasts will be automatically downloaded to your mobile device. And to stay up to date with Oscar and his thoughts on the Wildcats, Twitter's the best place for that. He said Wildcat News. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Oscar Combs. I'm Bo Robinson, and as always, go Big Blue.